Friends, I'm very thankful for the opportunity that Ashley and I had to go and spend some time with some college friends last weekend to be encouraged. And I'm even more thankful that there are uh, men in this church who are able to faithfully preach. And I'm especially grateful for Russell, uh, who preached last week uh, from uh, John chapter 20 on Pentecost Sunday, speaking about the Spirit. And so we are going to revisit that again this morning, the person of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times, uh, within some of our circles, people don't know how to speak about the Holy Spirit. They get a little strange, or they, you know, we have any number of images in our mind of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so, this morning, we're going to spend just a little bit of time considering the person and work of the Holy Spirit as we see in John chapter 16. So, if you turn in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 16, we'll be reading verses 1 through 15. And in a few moments in our, in our order of worship, uh, we're going to be reciting from the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, it has this phrase, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we can breeze over this phrase, but we would do well to slow down to just consider why that phrase in and of itself was a point of contention between the church in the East the Orthodox Church, and the church in the West, the Roman Catholic Church, to where that church had the first great schism, is what it's called, in 1054, when the church was rent in two. And this was one of the phrases that was seen to be the uh, reason behind it. There were a ton of reasons, and this is not a seminary class, so I'm not going to go through all the reasons. And th but this is one of the phrases that was pointed to to say where, where the Orthodox Church said we don't want anything to do with Rome anymore. And so the church was split because this phrase proceeded from the Father and the Son actually um, was a phrase that became popular uh, in 589 in a council, the third council of Toledo, uh, Toledo, Spain. And so they, the church debated back and forth for about 500 years of whether this phrase is really all that important. And so whereas we are prone to just kind of read it, we would do well to slow it down just a little bit and consider what does it mean that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. And just by way of parentheses, I think that it was a, a pretty uh, not, not a good thing for the church to split over this phrase. I think that there's more that can be said about it, but uh, as a Protestant church, and of course as is printed in your bulletin, we affirm that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so we're going to be considering what that means and this really is the church's effort to understand the person of the Spirit. That He is a person and not a thing. A lot of times it's not uncommon to hear people referring to the Holy Spirit as an it. But the Holy Spirit is a person. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. He indeed is dwelling within us. And He is worthy to be praised. And He is of equal stature as the Father and the Son. He is not something less than. And so that's why the church was really adamant that the word proceeding, procession of the Holy Spirit is really important. He proceeds. He's not created by the Father and the Son. The Spirit was not created just like the Son was not created by the Father as we also see in the Nicene Creed. Because the Spirit has always existed. In eternity past, when there was Father and Son, there was also Spirit. So He is eternally 
existent just as the Father and the Son. He is of, of equal nature as the Father and the Son. He is indeed is divine. And whereas the Son was begotten by the Father and not created, the Spirit proceeds and is not created. He's not made. He's always existed. And we celebrate this Trinity Sunday. It is good for us to slow down. And that's exactly what we're going to do. One way to speak about the Spirit proceeding... And by the way, this is, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a church before where this is not talked about very much, so this is something that is very germane and foundational to our faith, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And one of the ways that uh, the church has tried to explain what proceeding means, because we're like, what is proceed? To process, right? To, to come not out of, right? But not created. So how does that work? Well, I think uh, Augustine of Hippo uh, gets at it pretty well. Uh, as he does most things, uh, he said that the Spirit is the mutual love between the Father and the Son. And if you're really curious, uh, you can read Jonathan Edwards on this. He picks this up. He's the greatest, considered the greatest American theologian uh, that ever has existed. And he picks up on this as well in his dissertation called The End for Which God Created the World. It's a, it's a pretty meaty text um, and if you want, I can help you walk through it together. But the mutual love between the Father and the Son, that the Father has always loved the Son, and the Son has always loved the Father, and because of that love, the Spirit proceeds from that love in eternity past. Mind blown yet? Should be, because I, I don't even know where to go <laughs> from here if I were to expound any more than what's written in my manuscript, so I'll just stick with that, because that's the safer bet. So we see... One example of this in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul writes, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. And so this is not totally foreign to Scripture to say that the Spirit is the love of the Father and the Son in eternity past. So since the Father and Son have always existed, since they have loved one another before the foundation of the world, the Spirit has always existed. And He has always proceeded and I'm saying proceeded, not preceded, proceeded to process, right? Proceeded from the Father and the Son, from this mutual love. So, this phrase, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, is the church's way to get at who is the Holy Spirit. Where does His essence, where does He come from, so to speak? Right? And this is the church's effort to understand the biblical storyline. Because as we're going to be looking in John chapter 16 and throughout Jesus' farewell discourse in, in chapters 14 through 17 of, of the uh, Gospel of John, it's the church's effort to try to understand what it means that the Spirit is the same Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, who is the same Spirit as the Spirit of the Father. And so the church was at pains to understand the Bible. The church, just like the term Trinity, is not found in the Bible. It's the church's way to understand, well, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is divine and the Spirit is divine, so how do we get our heads around that? And this is the church's way of how they set to do that. So our passage, as I just mentioned a moment ago, is part of a larger uh, story or larger uh, moment, right? The Passover meal has just been celebrated by Jesus and His disciples in the upper room. And this is what's called the farewell discourse. And I'd encourage you this afternoon, uh, before or after you take your afternoon nap, uh, 14 through 17 of John, uh, to read that as a whole uh, after the upper room, uh, after they're celebrating the Passover in John chapter 13. And so Jesus just finished this and He starts talking about His departure. 
And a lot of the disciples are like, what is he talking about? I thought we were, I thought we were here to do business with Rome, but he's saying he's getting ready to go away. So what are we supposed to do with that? And so we read in John chapter 14, verse 16, just to get our bearings, I want to read a few representative verses as it relates to uh, John chapter 16. He, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper or comforter to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And then in verse 26 of that same chapter, 14, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, so the Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. This is not something where the Father does something independent of the Son, but the Son and the Father together send the Holy Spirit to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So he's speaking specifically to the disciples. and He's saying, when I go away, the Holy Spirit's going to come and He's going to remind you everything I taught you so that you can write John chapter 16 for the people sitting in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a moment in salvation history that we celebrate, that we celebrated last week, and then we continue in that procession of Pentecost to be able to sit here and listen to the, the very words that the Spirit inspired John to write down out of his memory for our edification. And then in chapter 15, Jesus says this again. He says, but when the Helper, who we know is the Holy Spirit, He says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And we're going to see this very same phrase uh, in verse 7 of our chapter. So the main point as I see it in these 15 verses, is that the things of God become real to us by the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to take the words of Christ and to make them real to you and me. It should not be lost on us that there are tons of people who read the Bible and are never changed by it. And the reason why they're not changed by it is because they've not been born of the Spirit. That Jesus talks about in this same book in chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He says, if you're not born of the Spirit, you won't understand the things of God. And so the work of the Spirit is to take and to burn it upon our hearts indeed to dwell within our own hearts so that we read Scripture and we're saying, this is God's Word. I will submit to it. Because Jesus is going away. In our passage, the one these disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to a place for a job and they said, hey, we got, we're going to pay all your expenses, we're going to take care of you, and it's not there anymore. <laughs> they, left that, they left everything. They left their families. They left everything that they had known to follow this one for three years. And then he says, hey, by the way, I'm going to the Father. And they're like, where's the Father? He's like, well, you know where he is. And it's very enigmatic language. And, and I would be shaken to the core like, well, I, I followed you. I, I left my father Zebedee so I could walk with you and you're going away. Can I go with you or where am I supposed to go? Can I go to the father, your father? Can I go back to my father? What, I don't know what to do. And so Jesus lays it upon them and he says, no, something better, someone better is coming. I mean, many of them probably say, well, I don't understand, Jesus. What do we do? 
Was it the plan all along? Why didn't you tell us? Probably frustrated. Probably disappointed, and we see that they're grieving and they're sad. And not only is he leaving, but there's going to be suffering to come. So imagine you leave and you go to that town to where there's no job, and then all of a sudden you are going to be persecuted. I think you'd be a little frustrated with your leader. I think you'd be a little frustrated with King Jesus. I thought you were on the throne. What's going on here? Why aren't you setting up the kingdom like we wanted? And in fact, in verse 1 of chapter 16, if you look here, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. A more technical way of saying this falling away is so that you might not be scandalized. So that when people look at you and say, where's your king now? And they beat you. And they throw you in prison. And they take your life that you won't be scandalized and so that people won't say, he does, he's not real. He says, I'm telling you thing, these things ahead of time so that when suffering does come, when persecution does come, that you'll be ready. And that you'll know that I am with you to the ends of the age, even though it doesn't feel like it. There will be persecution and death, and He prepares them for it so they won't get discouraged and think that God is not with them. Trouble's coming, so how do God's people persist? The answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And so um, let's read um, the rest of our, our passage together, verses 2 through 15. And we're going to have two points, and I'll get into those here in a minute. But verse, uh, verse 2, actually, I'll, I'll just go ahead and start with verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now, I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged." I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And so we see... That the work of the Holy Spirit is to burn God's Word upon our hearts to make it real, the things of God, right? That's the main point of these 15 verses. And we see it uh, in point number one, the internal work of the Spirit. And that's verses 4-11. through 11. There is an internal work of the Spirit. And you can probably guess that the second point is there's an external work of the Spirit, but we'll get there in a moment. But the internal work of the Spirit is what we see in verses 4-11. through The coming of the Spirit is a salvation historical event. We have to acknowledge that first and foremost. 
right? The, the tendency is to say, well, how does this apply to me? Well, we have to first say, how did it apply to these disciples? There's a salvation historical event that took place in Acts chapter 2 when Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit came and flooded their hearts, and then they were empowered for work and for mission. And then the, the work of the Holy Spirit continues to spread throughout to the, outer, the, uh, the uttermost parts of the earth as Jesus promised. And He, in fact, is guiding them into all truth as He has indwelt them. The disciples are overwhelmed with grief, verse 6. Another way to say that is they have great pain and distress and sorrow. It's overflowed their hearts. It's going to overtake them. But Jesus says that it is to His people's advantage that He goes away. And I confess that there have been many times, and maybe you have also had those moments in your life, you're like, and I am going through some deep stuff right now. I wish that I could just sit and talk to Jesus. Have you ever had that moment? Anybody? Like, if Jesus was right here, I would know what to do. He, he, he has a wonderful plan for my life, and He could just tell me. <laughs> but He says that it's to our advantage that He goes away. That it's better that He goes away so that the Spirit would come. And how many times have I taken for granted that fact? That Jesus, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can comfort you as you live in Malden and Simpsonville and Anderson and Greer and Greenville and anywhere else in the world. That the Holy Spirit can comfort me in the same way and in the same measure that He can comfort you. That's why Jesus is saying that it is to our advantage. That a, a literal carrying with is, the, is the, the original language here is that the Spirit comes to carry with you these things. It is better that I go away so that He can carry these things with you. The Holy Spirit comes to shoulder your load. One of the disadvantages of the Son is that having an incarnate body is that He cannot be in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But He can be with you to the, to, the, to the end of the age because of the Holy Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit. He's not bound by a human body. And He is everywhere at all times in the same measure. There's not greater concentrations of the Holy Spirit here and then there and then there. But He is with us as we go out as children of God and servants of Christ to love and serve others. He is with us in the same measure as He is right now as we consider God's Word. Not only this, but the Spirit's work in the New Covenant is even more astounding than in the Old Covenant. Because in the Old Covenant, the Spirit, as you, as you look at different passages throughout the Old Testament, is that the Spirit of God would rush upon God's people particularly the leaders of God's people. He'd rush upon the judges. You see that in Samson and Gideon and all these judges. He'd rush upon the prophets. He'd rush upon the kings to prophesy. He'd do all of these things. And it was primarily with those leaders. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes them with tongues of fire and then fills them. He dwells within them. So the Spirit is not someone who just empowers them for ministry, but that He lives in them so that they might do the work of ministry. He dwells within us. He dwells within us. 
As one uh, commentator said, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he wrote this. He said, the coming of the Spirit is the equivalent of the indwelling of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That Yes, it would be awesome to sit in a pew next to Jesus. Yes. But Jesus says there's something greater is that I am dwelling within you. You don't have to tap me on the shoulder anymore. But I'm dwelling within you to comfort you, to carry your burdens with you, to be with you, even when you feel alone and persecution comes and suffering and pain comes and you feel utterly alone and in the darkness. I am inside of you, dwelling within you so that you might persevere. But the work is internal in that He does it in our hearts. And you see this in verse 8 where he says, to convict the world. Right? And there's three things that he says that he convicts them of. And in a similar way, the disciples are overwhelmed with sorrow in their innermost being. The Spirit works on those very same guts. If you've ever felt sorrow in your heart, and you're like, no one understands, the truth of the matter is you're right. No one understands the sorrow and the pain that you are going through on the guts of who you are. But Jesus does. The Spirit does. And He promises He will comfort you in your time of pain and in your time of suffering, in your time of doubt, because He is on the inside. Because the fact of the matter is, I can't articulate, like when, when Ashley asks me questions like, hey, why, why are you so sad? Or why are you upset? I don't know. I don't even know how to articulate that verbally. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groans too great for words. He dwells within us so that we might have true and lasting communion with the Father and the Son. So the Spirit works on the inside of you and me. We can't change our circumstances and all the stuff out here and we a lot of times can't explain our circumstances to where we give it right uh, meaning for our lives. Like if somebody says, tell me about your pain. I really can't. It's really beyond words. That's okay. The Spirit dwells within you to give you the comfort that only God Himself can give. Yeah, sure, people are a, are a great comfort. That is true. And God gives us one another to minister to one another because we each have the Spirit of God dwelling within us but we'll always only give a partial comfort to the, to the gut-transforming comfort that only the Spirit can give. And really, as it relates to our own lives, Christian maturity is marked by growing intimacy with Christ and communion with the Spirit. Let me say that again. Christian maturity the maturity that Paul talks about that he wants for our lives is that you and I might have growing communion with the Spirit. Not just more information, but an inner transformation so that these words actually change us on the inside so that we are actually more charitable today than we were yesterday. We're more gracious today than we were yesterday. We're more discerning than we were yesterday. That from one degree of glory to another degree of glory, that the Holy Spirit is changing us to look and act more like Jesus. That's glorious. And that has to be an internal work. Nobody can start browbeating you and start slapping your fingers to get you to do the right thing and to stop doing the wrong things 
and expect something to actually change in your heart. The Holy Spirit has to come and convert your heart every day. Every day. So Christian maturity, if you're, if you're trying to look at your life and you say, I, I don't know if I'm growing as a Christian, look at your life today and say, okay, let's go back five years ago. Are you more gracious? Are you more kind? Are you more patient? Are you more loving? And if the answer is no, then that should be a point of saying, I need help. And I'm happy to help you. I'm happy to talk through these things um, of, what, of what that could look like. Because there are actions that you can take to actually start to work from the outside into our hearts. The Lord gives us these kind of means of grace, of coming to the table, of hearing God's Word, of coming to meet with God's people, so that working from the outside in, He can get to our hearts too. Those aren't diametrically opposed to each other. But you can't just look on the outside without looking at the inside and see, am I more genuine in my devotion to Christ? Or am I just doing it because that's what I'm supposed to do? But then secondly, not only is the work of the Spirit internal, but His work is external as well. See, Jesus links the internal conviction of verse 8 with three things, doesn't He? And particularly, look at verse 9. He says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they don't believe in Me. And so the Spirit's primary work is highlighting the work of the Son to turn people's hearts to Jesus. That's the primary work of the Spirit is to say, I, something ain't right. I need a Savior. And so the Spirit comes and gives us the faith to believe and to repent and believe in Jesus. That's the work, primary work of the Spirit, to convict us of sin so that we might turn to Jesus and find mercy there. But then as I was wrestling with the text here in verse 10, I was stumped, honestly. Jesus says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. I was like, wait, I, I, that, think about it. The Spirit is going to convict the world of righteousness because Jesus is going away and you're not going to see him anymore. What in the world? Like, just, that's strange. How, what, how does that factor into Jesus' algebra? You're like, I, I don't Righteousness, you're going away. Righteousness, because I'm not going to see you. I'm just going to let that sit there. How, how do you work on that problem? How does the Spirit convict of righteousness because Jesus goes away and you won't see Him? Uncomfortable yet? (laughs) Well, another way to talk about conviction is a revealing. An exposing is what he talks about later. An exposing of things to make people see them because they're not going to see Jesus any longer. I believe it's the day-to-day interaction that God's people have with the world. That's, that's how I think that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness, because they see God's people living lives of righteousness in the day-to-day rigmarole and the everyday stuff of life. When someone slaps them in the face, they turn the other cheek. When somebody says, go with me a mile, they go two miles. When someone says, give me your shirt, they give them their jacket too. In those deeds of righteousness, of justice, in a world that is utterly broken and unjust and and hurting, this is how an invisible Jesus is made manifest to the world. 
This is how Jesus is exposed to the world so that they might see what righteousness is. Is that they look at you and me and they say, that's what it looks like. That's what Jesus looks like. He, he loves those who are least. He takes care of the needs of those who can't take care of themselves. That's what I think Jesus is talking about. He's going away and the world will not see Him any longer and the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because they will see our righteousness. And you can, you can see how that fleshes itself out throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. And so the work of the Spirit is appropriated into your life and into my life. Right? And this is, this is against what is termed sacramentalism. And so sacramentalism is a, is a teaching that says, okay, if you just do this, then you'll become holy. Well, that's not necessarily the case. That's not necessarily the case. A true work of the Spirit is not the action, but the action of taking the Lord's Supper stimulates conviction and stimulates righteousness so that we actually, as a result of coming to His table, as a result of hearing God's Word, we actually commune with the Spirit and say, change me from the inside out, and we actually do that. There's nothing magical necessarily about coming to His table except if you come to Him in faith. You say, I believe that this is good and right for me to come to God's table and He will change you through these sacraments. But independent of faith, they don't have effect. And that's how, that's, that's how I put together how people can come to God's table week after week after week, hear God's Word week after week after week, confess their sins, sing the songs, and still not be changed. Because they aren't communing with the Spirit. It's not real in their life, that communion. He has not changed them from the inside out. It's no different than the time of Isaiah that we just heard a moment ago that this people confess with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. I have no delight in your feasts because there is no spirit. There is no faith in your feast. You can come to His feast week after week, and if there is no faith, if there is no communing with the Spirit, then it doesn't matter. He says, your heart is far from Me. And I pray that that is not the case for us, but that God works on the guts, and as a result of working on our guts, we actually live lives that show righteousness and justice. So when, I think that when God's people earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, as Paul admonishes us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, that the world sees righteousness revealed. And this is why Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ because his body goes away, but that's so paramount to why the church is the body of Christ so that the world can see what Christ is like. That the church is the physical manifestation of the life of God in the world. When we read our Bibles, when we pray, when we encourage and love one another, it's not simply something we are supposed to do. It's an overflow of communion, an internal work of the Spirit, a communion with God. And if you want to know if someone is really Christian, simply look at their lives. Because there is an external work of the Spirit too. It manifests itself. Righteousness cannot hide. In a similar way, judgment is made plain on Satan and his minions in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. As we read later on in chapter 16, I'm just going to quote it here in verse 33. Jesus says this. What is He talking about concerning judgment? Uh, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus says in verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me, 
you may have peace. And Russell explained that last week from chapter 20, that you may have peace in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How does he, he do that? On the cross, and in the resurrection, and in his ascension. Events to which the Apostle Paul tells the church in Colossae, he says, He, meaning Jesus, canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, in the cross, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So that's what Jesus is talking about, that the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of these three things. And and it is these colossal history-shaking events that the Spirit testifies to. In verses 12-15, through 15, He will guide into all truth. How does He do that? By speaking. Who's He speaking through? He's speaking through the apostles. He's giving them the words of Christ so that they might share those words with a watching world that desperately needs to hear them. The works of God are interpreted by the Word of Christ through the power of the Spirit. Let me say that one more time. The works of God are interpreted by the Word of Christ through the power of the Spirit. The work of the Son was completed for the redemption of the world. Love does win. But you have to define what love is. Jesus Himself said, greater love has no one than this that He laid down His life for His friends. That's what love looks like. That's what a Christian looks like, is to lay down our lives for one another, to serve one another, to care for one another, to bear each other's burdens, to shoulder them with one another because the Spirit of God dwells within us and He comforts us so that we might comfort others. The Spirit brings this historical work to bear in the lives of men, women, and children for the rest of human history. That's the work of the Spirit is that He testifies to that great work on the cross and He brings it to bear in our hearts. And so if you're wondering this morning, what must I do? You need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and bring conviction yet again in your own heart. If you've grown accustomed to the things of God and if you've treated the things of God as though they're common and taken them for granted, the Lord would call you this morning to commune with Him, to let Him do His work of conviction and of comfort for you. Let's just take a few moments uh, in light of this passage in John chapter 16. And, and I want to encourage you in just a few moments of silence to ask the Holy Spirit to bring this to bear in your own life. What sin have you been needing to confess but it's just too uncomfortable? What pain have you experienced that you just don't think anyone cares about? What loneliness have you experienced? What what suffering do you have that you don't think anyone in this room could understand? Let me encourage you this morning, during these moments of silence, that the Spirit knows. And He wants to comfort you. He's, he's longing to comfort you. You just have to open up the doors of your heart and ask Him to do it. So let's just take a few moments and whatever needs that the Spirit needs to minister to, we'll pray that He will do that. And I'll pray out loud here in a moment as you have time in silence.
Heavenly Father, we know that you love us and you care for us and you know us more into than anyone in this room ever could. And we ask you by the power of your Spirit through the Word of Christ that you would minister to whatever needs there are in this room. And that we would turn to you yet again and know that you work on us from the inside out and sometimes from the outside in. And so we pray that you would help us to have our eyes open so that we might see you at work in our lives. Whatever struggles and suffering and doubts that people have this morning, would you come in power to comfort and to convict and to make us more like Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.